0: in the uh, In the past few years um, the past few years, our society has stopped asking what they thought i think uh, they thought were the most important questions um, or at least important questions and they 've started making instead of instead of asking those important questions they 've started making definitive statements so i 'll give you an example um, Kristen. Yeah. Uh, Gillibrand, or Gillibrand, or Harvey's say last name, is one of a multitude of Democrats running for president, and, and more importantly, she is a sitting United States senator. And in an interview with the Des Moines Register in the last couple of weeks, she said this, this is a quote, There's some issues that have such moral clarity that we have as a society decided that the other side is not acceptable. Imagine saying that it's okay to appoint a judge who's racist or anti-semitic or homophobic. Asking someone to appoint uh, someone who takes away basic human rights to any group of people in America, I don't think those are political issues anymore. She's saying that if elected president, in the context of the interview, she says, if elected president, pro-life Americans will not be included at her table or on her short list of judicial nominees. It's not surprising, but what should be surprising and and unsettling to us as Christians is that in saying it this way, she compared the pro-life stance with racist ideology, and that's becoming more and more and more common. Our Our society has stopped asking the question, well, when exactly does life begin? And they started saying that it it doesn't matter when life begins, you pro-lifers have no right to make laws over a female body. They've instructed, for example, don't call it a baby's heartbeat because it's really just a, a cluster of pulsing cells. Literally within my lifetime, I was born in 1973, we've run full steam into the culture of death. And as that, as that boulder has barreled down the hill over the last 45-ish years, it has, really in the last decade or half-decade, really picked up some steam. So I've titled this series that we're working through here in, in June um, over the next couple of weeks, The Glory of Christ, Because We Have a Great High Priest Who Has Passed Through the Heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And so we can approach these things knowing for certain that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. We can look into these difficult topics, understanding that Jesus always lives to intercede for us. And so we hold fast to our confession. And with confidence, we draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a great time of need. And so this morning we're going to primarily um, park ourselves in the 8th psalm, which is a a psalm of David. Uh, David wrote this psalm. And in doing this, in kind of parking ourselves here, we're going to find, I think, the most important question in the entire life or death discussion, which is increasingly becoming not a discussion but a, a battle. We will find this most important question right in the middle of this chapter. But before we look at this, I want to be very careful about something. I want to carefully point out that while the, while the boundaries are continuing to be established along specific party lines, we must not look to politics for answers. Now, certainly politics can help. Romans chapter 13 establishes very clearly that governing authorities have been instituted by God to rule well and to bear the sword, to protect the people and to punish evildoers. And so therefore it is good and right for us to, A, submit to them as God's ministers. Romans 13.6 uses that word to talk about the governing authorities, God's ministers. And also, B, to look to them to do their duty to protect those under their charge. But the sanctity of human life is is no mere political issue. It is a theological issue, and it gets at the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In my um, role as the chairman of the board of directors for the New Path Pregnancy Resource Centers, um, I've had to meet with people who have... Either wished to volunteer to work with clients, so the clients are those who come to the center looking for help, or sometimes I've had to meet with leaders of other organizations uh, who wanted to partner with us in some way, and I've always had to explain to them, often I've had to explain that that while, yes, we are both pro-life, and yes, we're both working to save the lives of children, our primary focus is proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. I've had to explain to, to eager, um, loving, pro-life Mormons and Catholics that their churches have distorted the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as a result, we cannot partner with them, as tempting as it might be to have some political firepower backing us from Salt Lake City or Rome. But Paul said very clearly in Galatians chapter 1, verse 9, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. We must hold fast our confession, Hebrews says. And so we need to ask the right question, and it's right here in the middle of Psalm 8. So I want to read this. It's just eight verses, nine verses. Psalm 8, again, this is a Psalm of David. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Father, please give us what we need today. Help us um, to see the truth of your word and to not lean on our own understanding, to hear what you would say to us from your word, Lord, and not to be um, sidetracked with political climate or political discussion or even statistics, but to focus on who you are and what you have done. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we are in the midst right now in our society um, of a political, uh, an ideological, and truly a theological battle in this world today. Of course, it's actually nothing new. Um, there have been battles from the very beginning. Let's just think about the modern world for just a moment generations are shaped by the battles that they go through. And so the 1860s, the Civil War, that shaped our nation for years to come, decades, even maybe even a century to come. It still comes up. Um, In many ways, we're still dealing with the effects of the Civil War. Anyone who lived between the years of 1929 and 1939 you remember, your grandparents, great-grandparents were influenced by the Great Depression. The 1940s saw World War II influenced an entire generation of people. The 1960s saw Vietnam and the counterculture that made so many people into what they are today, one way or another. But there was a, there was a perfect storm of, of cultural and scientific developments over the past 100 years that got us to this point, that got us to where we are today. In fact, you could put your finger on three things. The first is this. Margaret Sanger, who started the organization now known as Planned Parenthood, she was a genuine racist and eugenicist and was very influential in the mid, early and mid 1900s in pushing for a birth control pill. And so we saw by the mid-1960s, easy access to effective, easy and cheap access to effective birth control. That was one thing. The second thing was Ronald Reagan, in 1969, as the governor of California, he signed our country's first no-fault divorce law. Uh, Interestingly, actually, a side note for the historical junkies. Junkies isn't the right term. Um, the first modern no-fault divorce in the world came out of the um, uh, Bolshevik Revolution, Soviet Russia. That was the first. Then, by the 60s, that was in the nineteen uh, early 1900s, 1920s by then, in 1969, 1970, um, our country's first no-fault divorce law was signed. It was followed by several other states. It had the long-term effect of making divorce for any reason at all much more acceptable and much more commonplace in our society over the last 40 or 50 years. And then the third sort of thing that you can put your finger on here is the sexual revolution, which really began in the 1920s but accelerated by the end of the 1960s. This was that attitude, do whatever you want, there won't be any consequences really. These three things put together, they have had the effect of separating sex from marriage and reproduction. And the next step in that, what really has happened over the last uh, five years, number four on that list that we're going to see, we're going to be able to look back on eventually and see this clearly, is that abortion is simply a matter of health care now. Now, I run the risk here of dwelling on these things too much, and my calling is uh, to preach the word, um, not to give you a lecture. But I want to give you a couple of really quick local statistics so you can have a better understanding of that important question that we are asking here in Psalm 8. Uh, So these stats are all from the Ohio Department of um, Health website. You can look these up on your own. In 1981, abortions in Ohio... Reached their peak with a little over 45,000 children put to death that year, 1981. That was the highest year. In 2017, which is the most recent uh, reported, there were just under 20,000 abortions, so less than half. That is a very good thing. But here is a a stat that might surprise you, and that might surprise you in and of itself that it has been um, halved, the number in Ohio, but here's one that might surprise you as well. In 2017, 87.3% of women who had an abortion in the state of Ohio were between the ages of 20 and 39. 87.3% between the ages of 20 and 39. That means that at this point, we're not really talking about a teenage pregnancy issue. Instead, we can interpret those numbers to mean that we're seeing the world's message beginning to win, that abortion is more and more becoming an acceptable method of birth control. But let's get even more local just very briefly. In 2017, there were 33 abortions in Logan County. There were 19 in Champaign County, 44 in Union County, and 33 in Shelby County. I think that pretty much covers where most of us live in this room. Two separate women in 2017 in the state of Ohio, two women, reported on the form that they have to fill out, that every state is different, but Ohio makes them fill out a form. The doctor, whoever is with them, um, has them fill this out. Two separate women in the year 2017 in the state of Ohio had reported that they had had 13 previous abortions. That means in two instances, a woman went into a clinic somewhere in the state of Ohio, some sort of clinic, some sort of doctor's office or something, and requested her 14th abortion. There were many, many more than that, who also had multiple, less than 13, that was the highest. Um, So as we work through Psalm 8, I want you to think about those two women. I, I want you to think about their combined 28 children. But I don't want you to think about them with scorn. Don't do that, but with compassion and with care. Think about these questions as we work through this. What must her life be like? How hopeless is that woman, those women? Keep that in your mind as we walk through this. I also want to point out that while the numbers of abortions are down, while that number is down in the state of Ohio, and that's good news, STDs in Ohio reached an all-time high in 2016. I'm not going to give you much detail here, I'm just going to name three, so just so you know. Chlamydia is up a little over 15 percent from 2013. Gonorrhea is up 43 percent from 2013. and Syphilis is up 72 percent. This is from the CDC's website. It's up 72 percent since 2013 and increasingly uh, according to the report that the CDC put out, doctors are seeing cases of it passing from mother to infant. That's not something that has been seen much before. And, and people are becoming much more resistant to medication. Additionally, each of those diseases can lead to infertility, stillbirths, other pregnancy problems, all kinds of pregnancy problems, and serious health concerns. But the risk of pregnancy... And the risk of disease, that's not really what we're talking about here. We're, we're talking about the sanctity of human life. And, and we're talking about the fact that for each and every person represented by those statistics, God cares. For each and every person represented by those statistics, 33 in the, in the county of Logan in 2017, God cares. Do you know that God cares about those 28 children who were aborted by the choice of just two mothers? Do you know that He cares about those two moms? Do you know why God cares? Do you know why uh, that as a result of God caring, we should care? Psalm 8 gives us three reasons, so let's dig into this. Psalm 8, the first reason is this, God is majestic in all the earth. God is majestic in all the earth. In fact, this truth, this proclamation, it bookends the psalm. He says it in verse 1 and in verse 9. Look at this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And at the end, as he finishes up, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David In writing this, he begins his praise and he ends his praise with an outburst of emotion. But he is saying even more than than we may realize. Because he he begins by addressing God by name. O Lord, all capitals, you can see that there. Yahweh, Jehovah, the one who has claimed the name for himself, I am. Uh, He says in in Exodus chapter 3, I am who I am. The one who is existing. O God, who is self-existent, all-powerful, all-knowing creator. O Lord. This is the name that Jesus claimed for himself seven times in John's gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. When David prays to the majestic Lord, all caps, Yahweh, Jehovah, he's praying to the, to the triune God, including the one of whom John wrote in, in the opening of John's gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. O Lord, you are majestic in all the earth. And in Jesus is life. And the life is the light of men. And then he says, O Lord, our Lord. Adonai, that second Lord there. O Lord, our Lord. That literally means authority. In fact, some of the really early English translations actually use the word governor. And the root word there for lord or governor, the root word is actually a verb. It's something that the person does. So think of a judge. A judge is what he is, but a judge is also what he does. And that's a similar idea between our with our lord. So it could be translated, O Yahweh, or O Jehovah, our ruler, our governor, our judge. How majestic and glorious and excellent and adorable and wonderful is your name in all the earth. But don't miss that it says, our Lord. O Lord, our Lord. In what sense is the Lord our Lord? Well, He is our Lord in the sense that He made us. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, God said, Let us make man in our image, and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Of course, you can hear God speaking here in the plural. Let us make man in our image. And as we just read a moment ago from John chapter 1, as I just said that to you, we know that Jesus was there. Jesus was actively involved in the creation of mankind. But, but this, is, this is more than mere intelligent design. And we would, in fact, have to rule out any kind of theistic evolution, which, of course, really means old earth creationism, because not only does the Bible clearly teach that Adam was a real man, and at the same way that in the same way that Jesus was a real man, but God is actively involved in the formation of every life. Not just generally, but specifically. Psalm 139. Verses 13 to 16, David says this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance." In your books were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them Now granted this is poetry the psalms are poems they are songs intended to be sing but sung but these words are personal if they're not personal they're nothing if they're not personal they're meaningless God formed David's inward parts he says you, he, he knitted me together in my mother's, my mom's womb. This is personal. He would speak to Jeremiah when he was telling him how he called him. In Jeremiah 1.5, he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you, Jeremiah. Before I even formed you in your mom's womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. That's personal. The Lord, our Lord, has made each and every one of us. And he protects us. And he takes special care of us because he knows each one of us. Again, Psalm 139. This time, the first two verses, David writes this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. So He is our Lord because He created us. But He is also our Lord because He has called us His own. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. This is actually... You will recognize this. It's all over the Old Testament. But Paul quotes it in 2 Corinthians 6.16 and he says this to the church, For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And when he said that, We can be assured that that is true. We can be assured that building His church is Him assembling the saints. He has made us. He has called us His own. own, And as a result, we call Him Lord because we are bound to Him as Christians in a covenant relationship. We, those of us in here who have trusted in Christ for salvation, are bound to Him and so He is our Lord. He said it Himself. Jesus said, Matthew 26, verses 26, 27, and 28. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And He took a cup and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the, my blood of the covenant." which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He he is our Lord. Logansville Church, He is our Lord. And every time we eat the bread and drink of the cup in communion together, we're reminding one another of that. And so, therefore, it means that we... As Paul instructs in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we are to be careful not to eat and drink in an unworthy manner. Instead, we must obey his commands. We must submit to his leadership. And as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, we are to do this. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death death. To life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law but under grace. He is our Lord because He made us. He is our Lord because He redeemed us. He is our Lord, and so we obey and submit to Him, and we, we pray to Him and plead with Him to show us mercy, and we also praise His name. But, but we not, must not. We must not merely praise his name in the privacy of our own homes. We must not merely praise his name in the privacy of our own or merely in the privacy of our own church. Rather we are compelled to praise his name with all of creation. Psalm 19 verse 1. There are many psalms like this, but or many passages of scripture like this, but Psalm 19:1 says, "The heavens declare the glory of God; the sky above proclaims his handiwork." So we could look at it this way. Those created in the image of God are the spokesmen for all of creation. Jesus even said, I I tell you, if these were silent, that is, his disciples who are proclaiming Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord. He says, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. We are the spokesmen for creation, and so we praise God with words. Do you know Why? Do you know why we do that? Because his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And this is emphasized in the things that have been made in the image of God. The things that have been made in the image of God. Think of it. Many, maybe all, at least most of you have held a newborn child, m- maybe in the last five minutes, um, and I believe that you have been amazed, that you have been amazed that that child was fearfully and wonderfully made, was intricately woven together by God himself, and knitted together together. her mother's womb God is majestic in all the earth and he has chosen us to proclaim this the second reason that we can see that Psalm 8 from this Psalm from Psalm 8 that God cares and also why we should care is because God's majesty is seen in his supreme creation look at verses 3 and 4 again He says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? We don't know when David wrote this psalm, at what point in his life. Um, We don't know where he was. Maybe he was standing out on the rooftop of his royal palace uh, there in the mountains of Jerusalem, high above the city lights, just looking at the sky writing these words I tend to think I tend to imagine anyway that maybe he was alone in the fields watching over his flocks by night but whenever it was that David wrote these words as he acknowledges the majesty of God in the night sky he's struck by his own puniness he's struck by his own just Smallness. What is man that you are mindful of him? And consider that, that stanza, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers. He's describing the, the power of God in human terms. He's not focused on God's fingers. He's focused on the vastness of the heavens. Yet compared to the, to the almighty, even the night sky is, is minute. God has set in place the the stars and the moon and the planets. and He has set in place space that we will never be able to fully explore. He has set them in place with just his fingers, is the imagery that he is using. And he cares for us. Verse 4 is the question that we all should be asking. Verse 4 is the question that all humans should be asking. We need need to understand this. Verse 4 is the question that mankind should be asking when they think of it like this. NASA. NASA should continue to research and explore space and as they do, mankind's response should be, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you would care for him? Same goes for medical research. Same goes for agricultural research. Think of that. As we pray for sunshine, for the crops, what is man that you are mindful of him? We are surrounded by food (laughs) and the Son of Man that you would care for him. The same goes for technological advancements. I could FaceTime with my mom who lives a thousand miles away. We should praise God for these things. This should be mankind's go to question. One writer said, man is so, freeble, so feeble, so frail, and compared with God's majesty and power is so insignificant that we sit in wonder that he would regard us in any way, either to govern or, or to judge us or to bless us or curse us. Why doesn't he treat us just like the rest, the animals? Why doesn't he treat us just like anything else? Look at the verbs that describe God's actions toward man in verse 4. They're, they're kind of passive verbs, at least in, in English there. The first one is mindful. What is a man that you are mindful of him? That means thinking about. Genesis chapter 8 verse 1 uses the same word, but translates it like this. God remembered Noah. In the midst of judgment and wrath. In the midst of God pouring out his wrath, when when he had looked upon his creation and seen that the, the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually, God was mindful of Noah. He remembered him. He showed grace to him. The same is true today even in the midst of a great evil and wicked generation, a generation that calls evil good and good evil. What is man that you are mindful of him when our daughters are called to shout your abortion? And the son of man that you would care for or visit him. That's the next verb there, and it really means to to search out and, and attend to. So if we were pulling verse 4 and just reading this one verse, we could see it by itself as as a warning. We could take it as a hint of judgment to come. God remembers your unrighteousness and he will visit you. But then we have to remember that David here is speaking of the loving kindness of God. But it's even deeper than he imagines. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the Son of Man that you care for him? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What is man? That you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? God's majesty is seen in his remembering us and attending to our greatest need, salvation. So, where does this leave us with regards to the sanctity or the sacredness of human life? I've just pointed out that man's greatest need is Christ. And so, is this question about the sanctity of human life, life in this time, in this world, is this question insignificant in light of eternity? Of course not. Because this question in verse 4 can be applied to every single human life. Because mankind, he will go on to say here, is the crowning achievement of God's creation. Look at verse 5. So verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. God has made man, mankind, humanity, the peak of creation. That's what the scripture here means when, when, when he says a little lower than. The word actually is Elohim, a little lower than uh, heavenly beings or, or angels. In fact, in Hebrews, it's, Jesus actually quotes this and uses the word angels. But what this means is that in all of creation, of only humanity, did he say, don't forget this, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And I need to point out right here, um, just so that just so that we know, the Bible teaches that that life begins at conception, not at viability. Um, Again, Psalm one thirty nine verses thirteen to sixteen, David says, "For you formed my inward parts; you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made." Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Every single child is made in the image of God. Every single human being is made in the image of God, formed by God, knitted together by God, intricately woven by God and watched over by God. And God has crowned mankind with glory and honor, he says here. Those two words, they mean pretty much the same thing. And so taken together, it actually means royal dignity. God has crowned mankind with royal dignity. Of course, the book of Hebrews will use this to to talk about the crowning achievement of mankind in in a certain sense. The one who is truly man and also truly God, Jesus Christ. King David, um, in Psalm 21, in writing of his own kingship, in writing of himself being king, he says this, O O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You've given him his heart's desire. You've not withheld the request of his lips. You've answered prayers. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence for the king trusts in the Lord and through the steadfast love of the Most High he shall never be moved. See, he's talking about his own kingship being given to him by God but similarly, mankind is is made to reflect the, the glory and the honor of God. We can see this in the dominion. God has given us. That's what he's talking about there. You you are probably familiar. We won't take the time to go to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's repeated right here. The dominion God has given us. In in the midst of um, a poor argument, Job's friend uh, Elihu, he, he asks a good question. He's got a poor argument, but he asks a good question. Who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth? And makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens. Who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? The obvious answer is that God has made humanity wiser, more knowledgeable than the beasts of the earth and the birds of the heavens. He has given us reason and wisdom and knowledge. And it is so fitting that we rule over them and that they be ruled over by mankind. And so this is our charter. Our charter. It's Genesis 1, 26. It's repeated in Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. The charter is dominion. As humans, this charter has not ended. We are to care for creation and use it. But then as Christians, He has also commissioned us to go and make disciples. And so of all people, as Christ's people... We should understand that every single human life, from the moment of conception, is crowned with glory and honor. And couple that with the absolute truth that God loves and values and, uh, the lives of children especially. That means that we must understand and work to protect human lives. Remembering that their greatest need, the lives of those two mothers somewhere in the state of Ohio, the lives of those two mothers who, who assented to someone putting to death their 28 children. Their greatest need is Christ. In, in 2017, according to the ODH website, there were two mothers who lived in this zip code who had abortions. 43318, the Graff zip code. Do you know what I would say if they were sitting here today? probably I hope the same thing that the angel of the Lord said to Hagar fear not for the Lord has listened to your affliction he is mindful of you and will care for your needs if you would trust in him their greatest need is Christ God is majestic in all the earth and has chosen his supreme creation to proclaim this and and you know what else? God loves and values the lives of children. Verse 2: Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Do you see the contrast between the first two verses? Verse 1, verse 9 says the same thing. Can you see the the contrast between verse 1 and verse 2? God is the highest of all beings. And in our day especially, unborn children seem to be considered the lowest of all beings. Pets often have more rights. But there is none stronger, there is none wiser, there is none greater than God. Babies are weak, utterly dependent upon somebody else. And yet these babies in verse 2 Babies and infants, they're opening their mouths and whatever they are saying, whatever they are crying is enough to still the enemy and the avenger. How do they do that? Simply because they proclaim by being made in the image of God, by being crowned with glory and honor, even just in their crying, they proclaim his invisible attributes, Namely, his eternal power and his divine nature. God loves and values the lives of children. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such it belongs the kingdom of heaven. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Hebrews chapter 4. We are reminded. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Pray with me. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When we look to the heavens, when we see the moon and the stars that you have put into place with your fingers. We have to ask, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you would care for him? By this we know that he loved us because he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Father, help us to understand these things as we look at our world around us to understand that even in the crying of a child, there's a reflection of the image of God and it is enough to still the enemy and the avenger. Father, we love you. We ask that you would transform our hearts.